Welcome to the Elite Level Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Elaine, and this is the podcast where we explore how elite level performers think, act, and operate. As always, if you're watching this on YouTube, I would really appreciate you liking, commenting, sharing, and subscribing. And if you're listening to this on any of the podcasting platforms, I'd really appreciate a five-star review. Now, as always, we've got an absolutely tremendous guest here today. Oli, it's amazing to see you. And you, Alex. Thank you for inviting me along. Absolutely. So, Oli, for those out there who don't know who you are, mm-hmm. if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. So, Oli Sharp, I'm MD for Amir for Salesloft currently. I spent 10 years at LinkedIn before leaving three and a half years ago, roughly, and setting up Salesloft in Amir, sales engagement platform. I was the first person in Amir and built the team to what it is now. Absolutely amazing. Now, Oli, I've done a little bit of homework on you before we came, and I know what preceded LinkedIn was quite an extended run within a recruitment firm, CED, and I'd love to learn a bit more about just your origin story. So how did you get into recruitment? Why was that top of mind for you? Let's start there. May regret asking that. I, I actually did, I came out of university and I did graphic design and business studies. So I always wanted to build my own graphic design company and run it myself and all of these kind of things. But it was so long ago, it was just when tech was starting to be used in graphic design. And I like drawing. So I chose all the modules drawing. I come up, come out for an interview and they say, you do something on a computer. It's like, I, had, I was clueless. Didn't know how to do it. So I applied for a marketing role that turned out to be door-to-door sales. So I did door-to-door sales for a couple of years. And I had to retire early from that because I hurdled someone's front wall and landed on the edge of the grass and tore everything in my ankle. So I still sold them a card when I got to the door, but I was in a lot of pain and it ballooned. So I had to retire. It was going to be my career for light, and it wasn't. So I left that, had to recover with my ankle, and I was looking for a job, and I contacted CD to see if they could find a job for me. And they just said, well, come and interview for us. And a week later, I had an offer to go join recruitment. Recruitment and sales are nothing aren't the things you plan to go into, especially recruitment. But I ended up there and I think it both jobs, door-to-door sales and recruitment gave me such a good grounding in sales, I think. And yeah, I still use a lot of those skills today in selling, but also hiring as well. Absolutely. And I'm glad I asked that question now because I want to double tap on actually that beginning part, right? Door-to-door sales is often Mm. known in this space as being, you know, a lot of people I hear say is an incredible way to start because of the resilience that it builds and a number of other things. So what specifically really made a difference for you by having that type of start in your career? It's a very basic way that they teach you of why people buy. They tell you there's five reasons why people buy. And so your pitch is very much around so-and-so down the street has just bought this. So you're bringing in the Jones factor and all those kind of things. So there was that and the mentality, because you're knocking on doors from 10, 11 o'clock in the morning till 7, 8 o'clock at night. By 5 o'clock, normally you haven't sold a card. And so how you see it is you're given 100 doors and every no is a step closer to a yes because you're working on a 1 in 10 ratio. And just that mentality, when you start cold calling and you get a no, 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 you're going, right, I'm getting closer, I'm getting closer. And it just it gave me the right mentality, I think, to do new business sales and to be not scared of cold calling. I mean, it's knocking on people's doors in the evening. They, they, they don't open the door and go, brilliant, I've got a salesperson at the door. So it just gave me a good grounding, lots of learnings from it, good yeah. mentality. Yeah, I, I, I love it. I love it, right? And many people out there will know that I started off in the photocopiers and printer game, which also back then was very much known as a really hardened way mm. to start. I was targeted to make 300 cold calls a day. 
But ironically, I think it was the best way that I could have started because the DNA that it imprinted in me at that time has still been a core part of my success to date. So it's fantastic to hear you started in a similar way, albeit a slightly different space. So you've now joined CD, you're in recruitment. Just walk us through that first six months because it didn't sound like you had experience in recruitment prior to that. Mm -hmm. So what was it like the first six months in that role? You know what, before the interview, I actually had to ring someone up to go, what do they do in recruitment? I didn't understand it. And I don't know, I, I must be stupid or something because I mean, recruitment isn't exactly complex. Um, but so I went into it and when I started, I was recruiting construction sales professionals. So CD were always a good company to work for at the time, I thought. And it was, it, it gave me a good grounding. I learned a lot. It was, I mean, it was a lot of outbound cold calling. It was learning construction. It was learning sales. Then I moved into the tech and telecom sector. So it was a lot of learning. It was to be going from door to door. The culture in recruitment is very different to what I'm used to now, put it that way. But it was a good learning. It was fun. It was hard work. I mean, I like hiring people from recruitment because of certain things. You work, they work long hours. They're maybe not treated as we are as grownups as, as much. So lots of learnings. I look back and it's different to how I felt at the time is the best way for me to say that. Interesting. Interesting. But you did stay a long time. We were speaking off camera actually about your tenure mm. at a number of different companies. We'll of course start with this run because I think it was around 10 years or so. So what kept you engaged for as long as you did? Completely. I mean, I enjoyed my time at CD. It was a good company to work for. I think in recruitment, you get to a stage that you go, right, I've had enough. I'm either going to go do it myself or I want out or, or why do I just stay here? I think that what happened was me and my wife went through a number of miscarriages. We had about six or seven miscarriages and it was a comfortable place for me to be at that time. And then we had, we actually had my daughter and then we had issues with that, that I had a bit of a sabbatical. So they gave me everything I needed at the time. Looking back, if it wasn't that situation, should I have left after six years or something? I'm very much a believer in fate because if I'd have left after six years, I probably would not have got my job at LinkedIn. I probably would not be where I am today. So everything happens for a reason. And I probably stayed longer than I should, but I ended up in a good place from doing it probably. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's amazing to hear how things have been able mm. to pan out for you, which is which is wonderful. I want to talk before kind of starting to move on to LinkedIn and the rest of your career a bit about the mental health aspect and how you were able to actually leverage that early door to door experience, the recruitment experience and some of the personal challenges that you had mm. really from a mental health standpoint, how now being able to look back on those things, you were able to get through those times. Is there anything tactical that you can put out there to listeners to say, you know, think about these things to help you weather these tough times? Yeah, I think that the, the majority of things that have impacted my view on mental well-being and dealing with adversity and things have been personal things for myself. There were the miscarriages I mentioned, and I know this isn't a therapy session, but I'm going to talk about things when about seven years ago, six, seven years ago, my wife got cancer. And that was probably the biggest impact on me and my life and the way that I am with my team and everything. And I was at LinkedIn at the time and we found out she had cancer and it was the news was positive because it wasn't bad. Then it was bad. And then we went through the quite a lot of turmoil. And my manager at the time, LinkedIn, LinkedIn are very good at looking after people, said, 
when I told him, he said, okay, your wife's your priority. Everything she needs, you make sure that you prioritize her first. Then you've got your kids. They're your next priority. And then you've got yourself. And so once you've looked after your wife and your kids, make sure you've got time for yourself. Do whatever you need. And if you've got any time after that, then feel free to do some work. And that sticks with me to this day. I mean, it changed it changed the way I saw work at the time. If I hadn't have had a manager that did that, then I don't know whether I would say that LinkedIn, I'd have probably been had a negative mindset, everything. So that impacted it, my the way that I think about things. And I do think that when people go through something that can be potentially life-changing, it impacts how they see things. And I'm very open about this with my team that I am not LinkedIn. I am I wasn't LinkedIn. I was working there, but I am not LinkedIn. I am not SalesLoft. It's a vehicle for me to provide money for me to provide opportunity for my family and my priority is my family and me and my wife have a pact that if we're ever not enjoying something like like if I stop enjoying working at sales loft it's not worth it life is about happiness and if you concentrate on your happiness and what and happiness is the journey not the actual destination that's where I think a lot of people think I want this and Stephen Bartlett talked about it I want a Lamborghini I want this and he got there and he realized that's not what happiness is and when I started Sales Loft, my goal was to provide somewhere where people don't have to go through shit in their lives to actually understand what life is about. And if I can provide a place where everyone turns up and is happy in their job day in, day out, and they don't actually have a difference in emotions and stress levels from weekends to week, and you look forward to a Monday, that was my goal when setting it up. And I'm hoping I've done a decent job of that. But I just felt that I could give people a lot more by me going through something than they don't have to if I can just teach them what it tells you. This is extremely powerful, Ali, and I really appreciate your transparency in all of this because I think it's making for a very impactful episode already, which is fantastic. You know, sometimes what I say to people in terms of thinking about these types of topics as well is that we all have a story and every day we just write another word on another chapter of that story. But when you kind of zoom out and look at our lives from a macro perspective and you're going through something that's really difficult, it's only ever going to be a, a small part of a chapter on a very broad story. And there's so much more to write. And mm-hmm. so I say sometimes just zoom out, right? Embrace the things that are powerful about the experience you're going through. Embrace the things that are going to help you to become more resilient, to be able to step forward and take on those situations in a more informed way moving forward. Mm-hmm. So. I just also wanted to put that out there on that same vein. I do want to get your perspective though, Ollie, on knowing that our ecosystem and sales big picture, it's known as a stressful industry, right? It's known to be very difficult, very demanding, presses people, targets, performance, all of these things being so central to our role. So with all of that in mind, you know, how much of you says actually someone coming into sales needs to just accept that versus the other side of it is maybe trying to seek out a culture or a company that maybe thinks about the world in a slightly different way. I'd love to get your perspective. I think it's about finding the right culture in the company. We're all different. And some types of salespeople will not be right in my organization. Some people, I've interviewed people where they've smashed target, but they're very money focused and self-focused rather than thinking about others around them. And that's not the right person for my culture. So I do think that it's very important. I think I wrote something recently, and there's there's a book by Sean Aker called The Happiness Advantage. Happiness Advantage, and he's a Harvard professor, and I'm also reading Mo Gaudet's book at the moment, which is about Soul for Happy. And to me, it's all about the journey. But what 
happiness advantage talks about is that most people think successful people are happy, but really happy people are successful. And if you're happy, you become more efficient and effective in your job. So the way I see it is that as long as I can build a good employer brand to attract the best talent, then I actually hire the best talent. All I concentrate on is set expectations and make them happy. You've got to set expectations because if you just concentrate on the happiness afterwards, you're just like, okay, why are they not doing their job? But if you can actually set the expectations, say your job is about this. And when you hire some, when I hire somebody, it's a partnership between me and them. Okay. I decide to hire, they decide to join. It's our choice that we both went down that route and it's our job and our commitment to each other to make that person successful. And I think that changes for lots of people because lots of managers, they hire and they're like, right, go do your job. And I don't see it like that. I mean, if, if I hire someone and they're not successful, it's my partly my fault because I've not hired the right person, whether they don't make an effort, whether they're not good at their job, it's my fault. So I think that partnership makes a difference. So I do think that at the moment in sales, I think there is a, an opportunity that I think I've sort of spotted where I think the processes like the medics in the world are great. It helps us sell it because we, we are better salespeople when we're using a process like medic. But some companies out there maybe don't look after their employees, but like the medic framework. And I think that if you can get the right mix of those where you're using something like medic, medic, but you're teaching and developing people of how to be a great salesperson, but you care about them and you look after them, you concentrate on their happiness and make sure they're having fun while working. That to me is a gap in the market that unless not just doing it because you want people, that's what that makes a good business, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really, really powerful point because we have all seen this out there in the industry, these, let's call the the, the medic shops or the medic houses that are great at maybe enforcing that type of framework. But the gap that they have is they forget that they're trying to implement that on humans Mm. and humans require care and empathy and nurturing and all of these things that you would like to think would be pretty normal to someone. But unfortunately, Mm. we don't see it enough. And that's where when we talk about burnout and the challenges and just toxic cultures, a lot of it originates from that type of thing. So let's talk about now, Oli, the point in which you became a leader yourself. Tell us when that happened, what that transition was like for you and that kind of first initial few months in that role. <laughs> yeah. So when I was at LinkedIn, I, was, I went in as an AE and I achieved one of the top AEs globally. Then I moved to account management, top AM globally. And I then moved five years in, went into management. I had the mindset of, yeah, I can sell. I'm top salesperson, I'm going to be a good, I will be a good leader. We know that's not the case. I mean, it's proven over and over again. And I made so many mistakes in doing that. I built my first team I built, they were all very similar to me and each other. We know that doesn't work. I didn't listen. I always thought I knew the answer. I thought I knew the best way to do things. I didn't realize that there was such a thing as neurodiversity. And when I look back, I just sit, I mean, I, I cringe at what I did when I went into leadership. Luckily, I, I took feedback and I learned and developed, but I built a team. The first team I built was selling to the staffing market at, at, at LinkedIn, selling to recruitment agencies. And yeah, it was, I mean, we were successful. I did the things I did right was defining a narrative, rewriting the narrative, which I rolled out globally. The things I did wrong were leadership. And when you look at leadership skills, it's not so many people you see go from sales into leadership. 
And there is this thought that, oh, there's my top salesperson. I'll put them into leadership. And it's a completely different ballgame. Yeah. So different. What, what do you think that that person needs to really care about? And what I mean by that is that one of the gaps sometimes I've heard of, you know, people taking that transition from being top salesperson into that role is that they have to ask themselves, do they truly care about developing talent? Do you really, really care about people nurturing the development? Would you agree that that's probably one of the larger deltas or things that people maybe don't consider when they're taking that transition or is there anything? A hundred percent. I think then there's someone that I'm sort of mentoring, advising at the moment who is thinking about going into leadership. And when I asked the reasons to go into leadership, I challenged them on it because it was like, okay, well, I see it as my next step to, because I want to run a company, I need to get into leadership and stuff. And that's not, that doesn't make the best leader. And when you look at Simon Sinek and what they talk about, it's, it's always about caring about others and putting other people first and providing a reason for other people to work for you. Good leaders should be the inspiration to their team. And if you go into leadership for the wrong reasons, I mean, you don't earn as much money. So let's rule that one out straight away until later on in your career, then it changes. And you've got to be a lot less selfish. You don't run your own diary anymore. You, you're literally having all of your personality taken away. And the best thing for me when I realized more about leadership, I got so much pride from seeing everyone else succeed. And I would, I think, to me, good leaders promote, not promote as in next level up, but promote their team. When you're sat in an ELT meeting and saying, so-and-so has been doing this, that to me is a good leader. It's not I've done this because it's not, it's them. And if you can empower the people and help them progress in their career and develop and get recognized within your business and in the industry and coach them to do that, that I believe is what sets you up for better success as a leader rather than thinking about yourself. It's not, you can't be selfish as a leader. Yeah, really, really powerful stuff in all of that. I guess as we start to kind of look forward throughout your career, one thing that's consistent is a number of promotions, right, that you had not only at LinkedIn, but in your previous roles as well. So when there's people out there that are thinking that they want to take that step up, they want to try and take that next move, what are the things they should be thinking about? What are the kind of prerequisites? Is it excellence in your current role, for example? What should people be thinking it's about? It's an interesting point because we talk about this a lot and I learned a lot about it at LinkedIn. And I think a lot of it, like I talk about the happiness not being the destination, a lot of people see transformation and development as that promotion. It's not. It's what you do in your current role. And it's everyone's going, right, when can I be an A2? When can I get this? When I When can I get that? And I think the mindset for me is more about you develop in a role. You don't develop when your job title changes, you develop within a role. So if you're concentrating on developing and normally within any role, you're probably going to learn for the first three to six months because you probably don't have much of a clue. Let's be honest. Then after the six months, that's when you start actually getting your head around it and you become the conscious aware and all uh, unconscious awareness, all those kind of things, that whole cycle. You get to the stage that you actually go, okay, this is what I'm meant to do. Then you start learning what you're meant to do. And then once you get to that, you get to on this LinkedIn, they called it sort of the crucible where you actually know what you're doing. You start plateauing on your learning, but you start getting better and better at what you do. Then after that, you then are good enough to teach others how to do the job best. Only then really are you credible to have a job title change, but all the development happens in the role. And I think that is... A big was a big learning for me because I was like anyone else just chasing that next job title or that next promotion. And I don't think it's the case. I think that 
if we think about ourselves, the reason why people stay in a business is it not just the, the only reason. One of the reasons is because they can see that they're being developed, they're learning, they're progressing in their career. And yes, you can't keep someone as an SDR for five years, but at the same time, you've got to be developing them. And I think that's the best way to see it in my view. Yeah, really, really powerful breakdown. I think it's be extremely, extremely helpful. I want to learn more about when you took the step from first line leadership to second line, because I think something we don't hear as much about is actually what the experience is like mm. managing managers. Mm. So just tell us a little bit what that's like if we got to yeah. be in your office for a day. Well, I think one of the things that when you were asking that, that I didn't say before was when you go from salesperson to sales leader the first time, your first mentality is to still be involved in every job, in every opportunity. You still think, and you end up treating your team like the admin people to, for you to sell, to close the deals. When you move into second line, I actually went to second line thinking, what am I going to do all day? I'm going to have two managers. They were both going to have 10 people under them. I'm probably, I'm probably going to be able to chill out and do nothing. And that was wrong. That didn't happen at all. I think that moving into second line, it changes the way that you think massively because you've got to think more as a business than a front frontline leader because you're thinking more about the strategy and you're looking out for completely different things. So it's like not every salesperson is going to be a good leader and not every sales leader is going to be a good second line leader. I mean, there is a sales leader that I know that I'm quite close to who they're now a second line leader, but they're still in every deal. And it's it's like, well, you're not acting as a second line leader. You're still the first line leader. So when I moved up into that, there was a lot of learnings for me. But I think it was, you've got to keep zooming out and that helps. And when someone says, what do you mean by zooming out? It's thinking as a business rather than as a salesperson or a sales leader. And that helped me a lot. And I think that when you get to that level or that stage, You've got to think about different things, more about the internal stakeholders, more about the bigger picture of the business rather than is that person hitting their number. But then you've also got to teach people how to be the sales leader that you've just actually been as well, who are probably going through all those things, being involved in too many deals, not thinking about diversity, all the things when they're doing it. So it's a big job moving upwards. And I thought it was going to be really easy. Yeah, it's really fascinating to get a bit of a lens into that, right? And some of the things that would be keeping you up at night, for example, as you're continuing to kind of build things out. Mm. As you took that step into Sales Loft at the time, I actually remember when you announced it a few years ago, and it's crazy to think how quickly time has gone by. You know, things were pretty early at that particular time. So I guess you had to come in and from what I gather, almost build things pretty much from scratch, certainly yeah. over here. So I just want to get a better lens on that experience being first on the ground or early in the ground, building, a, you know, a completely new function over here. Just tell us a bit about that experience. So I think when I look back, one of the things that was the biggest impact on our success was actually somebody, Chantal, was sales loft for two, three years in the US and she had a European passport and she came over as the first AE over here. And because she and that was a game changer. I mean, I didn't need to go sell the product. I didn't need to learn to sell the product. I didn't need to help someone find who they should go to in the US to solve a problem, she just cracked on and she knew everyone to go to. What that freed my time up to do was hire people, look for an office, do all the things, think about how we change the narrative. Because we, I think that one of the biggest things with any company, if you're an American and you come to, to sell to a mirror, you've got to change the narrative. We're not the same. We don't sell the same. We don't buy the same. So I could concentrate on the things that would really move the needle while Chantel just got on and started bringing in the revenue. That was the biggest thing for us. It was it made a massive difference. I think that 
we were at a stage, you're right, because no one knew what sales engagement was. When I started LinkedIn, no one knew what, knew what LinkedIn was. That was, I was there. When I joined LinkedIn, there was 14 people in the UK and it was the only office outside the US. You call people and say, I work for LinkedIn and they go, what's LinkedIn? I was like, and you look back now, you go, that's not, that's not the case. But sales engagement, no one knew what it was. And so it wasn't a case that you're not picking up the phone and going, we do sales engagement and people go, brilliant, tell me about it. They go, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. So you had to go and find, really get underneath them within a conversation to understand what pain points they're looking to solve for you to actually implicate it at a high level so you could actually go in and prove a worth of your product. It was hard at the time. It was very different to what it is now. And I'm not saying, I mean, enterprise is still very slow in their progress in, in, in the way they're seeing it. But commercial, which the smaller companies, they're quite advanced now. But yeah, it was, it was different. Educating a market is a very, and go, educating a market and going to people that is not just LinkedIn, yeah, it's a door opener, was, was very different for me. But it was what I enjoyed doing. I love yeah, doing it. absolutely. I mean, selling to sellers is also quite... Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it. It's great. Well, one thing we tell, I tell people when they join is, most of the time when you're selling, and you'll see this as well, I mean, you spent some time very similar places, mm-hmm. that when you're selling, most of the time when you're selling, you're judged on you as a salesperson and the product you're selling. We're also judged on the sales process we take them through. So if we don't take them through a good sales process where the outbound emails are good, where everything is good and the process is tight, they're not going to buy from us. So we have to be the best in the process we take them through. Absolutely. Drinking your own Kool-Aid, as yeah. they say a little bit, right? So. One of the other topics we were speaking about before we started was just that point around your tenure, Mm. right? And so you've had an amazing run at CED, same at LinkedIn, building that, the same thing at at SalesLaw. Why do you stick around at these companies so long and let us into your your thought process? I mean, if you look at my CV, I've stayed at the companies long, but I've never done a job for more than two years. And it's, uh, I think I did right at the end of LinkedIn, yeah, right at the end of LinkedIn, I did for more than two years. And at the beginning of sales loft, I've done it for two, for, but I mean, you can't say at sales loft when you join and there's one person there and then three years later, there's a hundred, but your job title is still the same. It's not the same job. So it's, uh, but w- when you look at LinkedIn, AE two years, RM two years, management doing frontline management two years. So sometimes I do look back and think maybe I stayed too long. Like I talked about a CD, I probably stayed there too long. I probably stayed two years too long at LinkedIn. But again, if I hadn't have left when I did, I probably wouldn't have got the opportunity to sell soft. It's fate again. So I think that I've noticed and I've learned that to maybe be open-minded to think about moving sooner rather than waiting a little bit longer. But I do, as long as I can see development and progression in a company and I do get bored, not bored easily. I, do, I, I can't stay in the same job for five years. But as long as I can see that and I can change, then I enjoy what I do. And that's what keeps me at a business. Absolutely. So, I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, if you were looking back at Ollie 15 years ago, for example, would you have actually taken those leaps earlier, do you think? And if you would, why would you actually have taken that decision? I mean, 15 years was when I was in recruitment. I probably would have had more hair if I'd have got out sooner. Maybe I'd have kept it. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, looking back of where I've ended up, no, I don't. I, 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 I'm sort of saying I don't have any regrets, zero regrets. At the time, do I think I should have left sooner? Yes, because I stayed there for the wrong reasons. But then I wouldn't have ended up where I am. And 
so yeah, I don't no regrets, but probably looking back, if someone was in those shoes, I would be saying, look, maybe it's time to look around. Got it. No, it makes a ton of sense. So let's fast forward to what really drives Ollie right now. So you've achieved some pretty incredible things throughout your career. You carry a managing director job title. You've got a fantastic brand and, you know, I followed a lot of the stuff that you've done on LinkedIn, which is great. You know, what drives you at this point? The happiness of my employees. Simple as that. If they're happy, we're going to be successful. They're going to be better at their jobs. What, if you make it into more of an equation if we're developing people if they're enjoying coming to work if they like the people around them they're going to be happy if they're happy they're going to be more efficient and effective in their job which means we're going to be successful as a business so it's not about the success i mean if we if they were happy and we we're doing 80 percent of target i mean we've never we've, we don't we haven't missed the target we've we've done 180 percent, 140 percent sort of thing if we were doing 80 percent of target i'd be questioning myself why we're happy but they are and just Having a team that, I mean, we, I had a starter come, new starter come to me the day and just went, I can't believe what you've built here. It is amazing. I've been here two weeks and I've never seen anything like it. I love what you've done. And this is a new starter, junior new starter. And it just blows me away that people can have such powerful words about something I've built. And when I say something I've built, there were seven of us that started and within three months and I owe it to them for helping me build this culture. But that's what drives me. I find that if I've not been in the office for a, a week or two, I miss, there's something missing in me. And I've, I, 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 it's like a drug. I go into the office and it brings the smile back on my face because I see the people. I see how happy they are. I see them getting on with their job. And that's what drives me. I think that there's so much that makes it up. The loads of little sums that gets people happy and developing and building their brand in the industry. But that's what drives me. That's fantastic. I mean, there's something that's infectious about you, uh, Oli, the way that you're able to communicate these things, the empathy that you have and the genuine care. You can actually just feel uh, the passion that you have for your team, which I think is pretty, pretty remarkable. The, the thing that we haven't spent as much time on is actually what makes A players, what makes great talent, mm. because you've spoken so much about the importance of, uh, you know, who you would hire, who you wouldn't hire, a bit about why you would or wouldn't. Mm. But really what makes up Great talent. What makes up great A players? I think, I mean, first of all, you've got to, in the interview process, we all look at the culture fit. And that has to be because someone can be an A player, but piss everyone else off in the team. So that's sort of the unlocking door that gets them in, into an interview. What I find are people with the sort of the, some ex, the, ex, the right experience for what you're looking for. And when I interview, I mean, 10 years of sales recruitment interview, I use a lot of that now. I have a certain things I'm looking for, the way someone has sold in the past and stuff like that, and the, if they're selling an IT solution compared to a business solution. So that that helps me find the right people. But the things that I see as important, and Mark Roberge talks about this, John McMahon talks about it, some of them are sort of the curiosity side. If someone's not curious, and that's curious helps them develop, okay, how do I do this? What do I do next? But also curiosity helps in sales. If you sit somewhere, sit next to someone and you go, yeah, what's this? What's this? And you're doing as a checklist exercise compared to going, okay, why do you do it that way? That, that makes a better salesperson. Somebody that takes their development and their sort of career path, they own it themselves. I, I'm ruining it for people interviewing with me because I say to them, what's the last thing you did to develop yourself? And someone that says, yeah, the company put me on this course. I'm like, no, that's not what you're developing yourself. Because as a leader, I love developing people that want to be developed and take it on their own back to go, yes, I'm going to learn this. And you buy books for people and 
nine out of 10 don't read them, but you want the, they want that one person that does read them that goes, all right, I've learned from that. And they develop, so they take ownership of it. Those kind of things make a, make a big difference to me. Someone that's got the intelligence to actually sell your product as well and thinks in the right way. I mean, if I look at my A players, they are so keen and eager. I mean, there's Misha Jessel Kenyon. He's just, I mean, he won 100 over 100 two years ago and or a year ago or whatever, and he came quite high up this time. He's a delight to manage. He comes to me going, I'm reading this book. You should read it. It's fantastic. We need to do this. We need to improve our process. And when you look at someone like that, that's got the intelligence because in a sales process, one thing I found with management, when you went into it, you're going, why doesn't that person do the same way as me? But when I'm with Misha, he does things. I'm going, he's done it the right way. Like someone says something, he knows how to turn it around. He knows how to actually bring their pain back into the conversation. And he's got the curiosity and the intelligence and he wants to develop himself. They're the three things that I think are no brainers. Yeah. They're my A players. Really, really powerful points. And a lot of them I can, you know, empathize with, or I say empathize, actually just relate to in terms of the same kind of traits I've seen in top tier performers. Things that I often add are things like their, their drive, their adaptability, especially when you're talking about a young company where change is a constant. So those are other things that I think are worth putting in the mix as well. And on, sorry, on that, you've also got to think about, like you say, the company and the timing, because what I looked for, the first people I hired are different to what I look for people now. And Salesloft needs things differently now. I wanted people that have built new ways of doing things, implemented stuff. And now I don't need that because we've already implemented it. So it's the A player can be different in your first six months to your to three years onward sort of thing. And making sure as a leader, you understand that is important. Yeah, it's a super powerful point because I it takes me back to a, a scenario I recall actually being in one of the, the first runs or one of the first crops of sales talent in a company. And they'd brought in a lot of the quote unquote A players across all of the industry, but there was less consideration around the roles that those people had just come from. Mm. And I remember one person in particular had come from a, a strategic AE role where they were used to just in essence farming a few accounts and growing and doing upsells. And then you've gone and put them in a, a role where we've got, you know, zero logos in EMEA. And actually your job is to, you know, help us get from zero to, to even 10 mm. of the very first logos. And that person ended up leaving within three weeks. Doesn't surprise me. Right. And I think people do that. And I think there's a risk of going, oh, they've got IBM, oh, they've got Salesforce, oh, they've got this on their CV, they must be good. It doesn't mean they're good. It depends whether their, ro their role and their timing aligns with what you're looking for. Yes, exactly. It's having the, the right person on the right position in the pitch at the right time. Something you've spoken a fair amount about is culture. Mm. And culture means different things to different people. Yeah. So to Oli Sharp, what is culture? How do you build it? How do you define it? It's hard to define because and the way I see it is, Every, every company has a culture and there's no good or bad. There's just, is the culture right for the person? And other companies that have a good culture, I wouldn't fit into their culture. I like my the culture that I see it. So, and it is hard to define. It's, I mean, it is sort of the gel between the people that you take on and it's the alignment of the values. I think that I went to, I left recruitment. I'd interviewed so many people that had left companies because of culture. So I then go to LinkedIn uh, interview process. They start, start talking about their core values and their culture. And I was going, oh, here we go. Another American company. It's written on the wall. It won't mean anything to them. I was wrong, massively wrong. I learned so much about culture and the importance of the values, culture and values throughout my time there that when I left, I went to, uh, when I was looking for a job, I said, I want a company that either proud of their culture or they want me to build their culture. 
I was lucky I got both. Salesloft were proud of their culture in the US. I could build it over here. So the importance of it, I saw how much it retains your staff, how much it actually increases the employee happiness within your glint scores or whatever you use. And that, again, drives the success of the business. We've become quite known for our culture at Salesloft, which I'm really proud of, but it was all my learnings from LinkedIn. And I think it is so important. You can have the best sales process. You can be a good hirer. If you don't build that culture where people thrive, and Stephen Bartlett talks about this, about making sure that you are hiring A players but providing a culture that those A players can thrive, that's what makes a successful business. And if you've got one or the other, it doesn't work. You've got a good hire and culture. Yeah, really. So making sure it's in the interview process, making sure that you're hiring for it and understanding it, but then actually living up to what you say, that's what matters. And it's the, I think that's where people fall down. They talk about it and they, they don't back it up with what they do, their actions. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I was sitting back taking it in. I want to get tactical on it for one second mm. with you, Ollie. And when I say that, you know, say I'm listening, I'm about to take on my first sales leadership role. And I want to build a great culture. Mm -hmm. You know, what's the first three things I should be doing or the first few things that I can do that are actionable that will help me build the pillars or the foundations of a great culture? I think that defining your values as a leader and a business are really important. I think that because you, you want people that are, can align with those or understand them at the beginning. So defining values for team and business, making sure... I looked back at the leaders that inspired me that I felt that the comfiest with, the happiest with, the I did the best work. And I thought, okay, that's how they built a culture. They supported me. They were supportive in the things I did. They coached me. They developed me. So working out not just your values, your purpose and what your value add is as a, as a leader and a business to these people that are joining. And that's what's helped me do it. And it, it, it may be not the most tactical answer for me to say that because it's hard to actually go, right, How it, you've got to work out how you do that. If you're giving people a purpose and you're showing your values, I'm very high on integrity. And that's a that's black and white for me. If someone doesn't show integrity, I am not interested in that. That can impact my culture. So me knowing that helps me build that culture where I will always show integrity. No gray area in that whatsoever. So... If you know your values, build your culture around those. That's really, really powerful as well there. I mean, Oli, last couple of questions from me here. But, you know, if we're looking ahead with you and your career and just you within the kind of software sales arena, sales arena, big picture, mm. what, what's the legacy that you want to really drive within this space? Who do you want Oli Sharp to be known as and what do you want your name to really stand for? I'd love to be known as a true leader. And I think that not a manager not a, a sales leader, a leader that inspires the people around them, someone that can build the culture and define the processes. Processes sort of come last for me because that's just part of the job. You, you've got to build, put the processes in, but I want to be known as a true leader that inspires and builds a good culture. Really special, really special. I've got one final question for, for you. It. And if you watch any of the episodes then you'll know what's coming, but is to ask, and if you were talking to that person out there who wants to go from good to elite level in their career, what your best piece of advice would be for that person? Know your weaknesses and learn from everyone around you. And I did a talk at Sasquatch the other day about self-awareness and self-awareness is about understanding yourself and how others see you. 
And part of it is knowing your strengths and your weaknesses. And when I interview, I ask people what their superpower is and what where their main area of development is. And the awareness of those is key. I went into sales knowing my strength and my many weaknesses. And I then looked around for who around me had the strengths that contradicted mine. And I, or my aim was learn from everyone around me that had a strength that I didn't have. Because if I could be as nearly as good as every person on their superpower, I would be the best person in the team. And that's all I did. I love it. What a way to round off. Now, before I round off, it's a couple of things I want to say. The first one is Ollie's officially been the first guest that has actually turned up here and brought me a load of swag with him. He's given me two t-shirts, I think a phone charger and something else. So Ollie, just super, super grateful thank for that. We'll have to get a, a selfie up on LinkedIn with that. So thank you so much. And the second thing, this has honestly been one of my favorite episodes. Extreme. You said that to everyone, I'm sure. <laughs> Rinsing and repeating here, but it's been really powerful, some amazing insights and in that the transparency that you've shared throughout has really helped me certainly be able to just have a, an open door here. And I'm sure for the listeners and anyone watching it, it they, they would also agree that this has been extremely insightful, but also impactful. So we appreciate that. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. I've enjoyed talking. I often say to my team about how important it is to be open with mental well-being and stuff and to talk about things. And hence, I am very open up things. So thank you for inviting me along and, do, and having this chat. Absolute pleasure. So look, if you have been listening all the way through, we appreciate that. Please be sure to smash that like button, comment, share and subscribe. And if you're listening on any of the podcasts in platforms that five-star review would be very much appreciated and we look forward to seeing you on the next one